Good morning. It's great to see everybody uh, this morning. And I uh, just really want to thank Stephen and Sheila Wright for putting this whole uh, program together for us this morning. And, uh, you know, Stephen and Sheila serve as deacons here in the church. And a deacon is one who serves, meets needs, washes feet. And Stephen and Sheila are prime examples of that. And uh, I love you guys. I'm so grateful for you guys. And thank you so much for bringing, uh, bringing black history to not just you guys, but just our, all of our, uh, just trying to celebrate our cultural differences and our cultural, uh, just learn from one another. It's awesome. And I love it. And I'm so thankful that our church gets to honor Black History Month in this way. So many schools in our community are talking about this. So many of our children are uh, at school learning about this right now. Why not talk about it in the church? Amen? <clears throat> As you can tell, my voice is a little shot. Um, I caught a little bit of a, a, a cold uh, yesterday. And then I went out last night with some friends and I was laughing too much. And it just happens, you know? So... Uh, <clears throat> Please bear with me. Uh, I, I'm assuming the college students are feeling similarly. I heard they were at a party last night. They had like a, a, a Alpha Omega, that's the name of the campus ministry, Alpha Omega Campus Ministries, all throughout L.A. gathered together for a big winter formal last night. Is that right? The college students were still asleep. They were still half asleep. They're like, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, it was great. They're still, they're still coming. They're still barely getting to church right now mentally, and, and it's okay. It's all right. Just roll with me, and we'll have a good time here this morning. Um, let's go to God in prayer. Father, open our hearts, open our minds to what you want to show us this morning as we go through your word and as we try to align ourselves with what your word teaches. Father, I pray that the gospel message will influence all of our decisions Father, that we will be informed, our perspectives will change because of the gospel. That we will not allow the world to influence our thoughts, our decisions, our interactions, Father. But that we would allow the gospel to influence every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was, um, today's title of our, our lesson today is... Uh, is gospel, well, I think I lost it there, gospel unity. And uh, we're going through the book of Galatians, and so we're going to do chapter 2 today. <clears throat> but I wanted to tie this into uh, sort of the cultural uh, feast that we have as a congregation in a way, of all the different people. So if you look around, all the different colors, all the different cultural backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds, it's amazing what God can do. Uh, when he, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? When I was growing up in Florida, I grew up in, 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 uh, in South Florida. Our church's uh, preacher uh, was from Tennessee, and he was a white preacher. And he'd often comment about growing up in Tennessee and how one of his close friends was black, and they would be in school together every day and play on the weekends, and yet the only time they weren't able to be together was Sunday. Sunday, in his setting, Sunday church, in his setting, was the most segregated day of the week. And it's always struck me as odd because I grew up in this church environment where racial diversity was celebrated and honored and practiced. As I've gotten older, though, I've come to realize that one can have diversity 
But it doesn't necessarily mean one is rid of prejudice or subtle microaggressions that are entrenched within the spiritual community of Jesus' followers. But to me, that's the power of the gospel. That only through the sacrifice of Jesus can we all come together and not only be okay with our cultural and racial differences, but we can understand, honor, and celebrate those differences and reflect God's desire for his church to be a beacon of hope and light in the world around us. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in his speech, I Have a Dream, when he talks about his children being judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Or he talks about the image of black boys and girls holding hands with white boys and girls as sisters and brothers. I can't help but think that the church should be the place where this is happening. That the world would learn something just by looking at the church. And yet, in many cases, this is not our reality. The church is still segregated in many places, in, in, in many societies. The church is segregated based on race or tradition or even music choice. And I have a hard time believing that's what God wants for his people. Here's the thing. What is true today was absolutely true about the church in the first century. A primarily Jewish church had a hard time understanding and receiving believers outside of the Jewish faith. Men and women that they would call Gentile. It was illegal and socially immoral to eat with a Gentile. And so when the Apostle Paul goes around preaching the gospel and Gentiles begin to believe, the tension it caused in the early church led to intense potential division. And difficult conversations. And so over and over, the Apostle Paul has to bring the church back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That through the gospel, God was doing something entirely new and entirely different. Last week, I addressed Paul's first chapter to the Galatian churches, where he outlines the clarity of his gospel message. There were teachers coming in to the, to the primarily Gentile church and preaching a message that included Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus abiding by the law in order to be saved. Paul comes in and he's astonished by the Galatians getting so easily swayed by these teachers. And so he clarifies in chapter 1, he clarifies the message of the gospel, which is this. You cannot save yourself. With all your so-called good deeds and obedience, you still need a Savior and a rescue that only comes through Jesus Christ. He begins talking about how he had gone to Arabia. In chapter, the end of chapter 1, he talks about he went to Arabia after he was... Uh, after he, his conversion story, he was, went to Arabia and Damascus for three years after encountering Jesus. And then this led him up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, who is known as, at that time, the leader of the whole kind of uh, Christian movement, if you will. And then chapter 2, let's turn our Bibles here to chapter 2. You guys with me here this morning? <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 1. He continues his testimony uh, in this setting. 
It says, then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Then when they recognized the grace given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I have been eager to do all along. Paul makes a decision to go up to Jerusalem after 14 years. Think about this. So he got, he got, he followed, he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. For three years, he goes to Arabia. He comes back. He goes to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. Then he goes off on his missionary journeys. And 14 years later, He's like, you know what? I'm starting to see this gospel message. It's influencing all these Gentiles and these Jewish guys who a lot of them are coming from Jerusalem are starting to mess this up. Let me go up to Jerusalem and meet with these guys, not to confront them, but to just, hey, am I off track here? What's going on? And what he does is actually pretty genius about Paul is he takes Titus with him. Titus If you read the book of Titus, he was from Crete. Do you know what they said about Cretans? In the book of Titus, Paul quotes a poet that says that Cretans are lazy gluttons. Evil, lazy gluttons. So Titus, not only was he a Greek, but he was like Greek of the Greeks. Do you know what I'm saying? And he brings Titus as a Christian convert and says, "This, this guy does not need to be circumcised. To be in right standing with God. And he meets with Peter and James and John. Those esteemed to be pillars, he says. And he tells them, guys, we got to get this right. Because just a little bit of kosher, just a little bit of Jewish adherence and obedience and expectation, just a little bit of salt added to the gospel, makes the gospel impure. The true gospel he talked about. We wanted the true gospel to be preserved for you guys. On one side, you had Paul with a message that said, have faith in Jesus. He gives freedom to all peoples from all cultures. On the other side, you had Jewish teachers saying, have faith in Jesus. Obey the law, be circumcised, and you will be acceptable to God. Paul knew That if this continued, and there was even a hint from the Jerusalem apostles that you had to eat a certain way or, 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 you know, obey certain laws in Leviticus, it would destroy God's vision for gospel 
community. The stakes could not have been higher. And what's awesome here about the guys in Jerusalem? They listen to Paul. They say, you know what? You're right. The gospel is for all people of all cultures. We will not send anybody. Those people that went are not even within our own. They're not, part, you know, no, you have the right hand of fellowship. Go. Preach the good news to the Gentiles. We'll preach to the Jews. And together we'll be this one new humanity that God has called us to. So it's pretty awesome, right? Peter, James, John, for the sake of church unity, they did this because they knew this could potentially become two churches, a Gentile church and a Jewish church. Can you imagine if Paul were here with us today? If he were walking down the neighborhood, just walking around, what would he see? A church for this people's, a church for that people's, a church for that culture, a church. And he'd look at us and be like, what? What happened? What happened to the gospel? All you need to know is that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and God raised them on the third day. And that changes everything. That changes how you interact. That influences all your prejudices. That changes everything. The gospel, a couple things that we can see from these verses. The gospel leads to freedom. He talks about that. He says, man, I wanted to take Titus up there. And it says here, you know, if... if um, uh, where is it? Where is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this matter arose because, in verse 4, some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Freedom. There's a cultural freedom. There's an emotional freedom. There's freedom in the gospel. And we're going to kind of talk about that as we move on through, uh, through the book of Galatians. But when you're constantly trying to please God based on following rules, there's constant guilt and insecurity, and a spiritual paranoia, and fear, like God's out to get me. But the gospel says, Jesus has taken on the punishment that I deserve, so my holy living and following a moral law is based more on gratitude and the freedom that gratitude provides. Does that make sense? So I am now living this way as a Christian, and I decide to, you know, put into practice the Ten Commandments and do these, uh, have moral law in my life. Why? Because of Jesus, because I'm grateful, because I love God, because he first loved me. It has nothing to do with law and obedience to a set of rules. There's freedom. The gospel unifies the church by the command to remember the poor. Think about that, what he said. The only thing they asked me is that I remember the poor, the very thing I I wanted to do. Should not remembering the poor unified churches all across denominations as we try to meet our needs in the community, as we try to figure out how to meet needs and serve the poor. The gospel unifies the church. The gospel, instead of focusing on our differences and prejudices, the gospel says, look to your neighbor, look to the needs in your community, no matter what race or culture, and meet that need. Verse 11. Continue reading. Now, it's interesting what Paul does here. When Cephas, it says here, came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter. When he came to Antioch, 
I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line, he uses the, look at, look at the, quote, the, the, the wording that he uses again. He says, in line with the truth of the gospel. He said, when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in front of them all, Hey, Cephas, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews, this is the same conversation, he says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. There's a lot of stuff here. Paul's saying some crazy stuff here, and he kind of goes off on Peter. Don't you love this about the Bible, though, how real it is? I love this. This guy is putting in front of the whole church, he starts talking to Peter like this. This is not a, hey, bro, come on, let me talk to you real quick. He says, in front of the whole church, I said, hey... You're being a hypocrite, Peter. You were just eating carnitas with us right over here, and then you go over there. Because all of a sudden, these guys from James come. Now think about this. Paul had just met with James. And yet, guys from James come in and try to disturb the peace. Do you see how tense this was? There's a lot of tension in the church. We always look at the early church like, oh, man, we got to get back to that. We got to be like the early church. Are you sure? <laughs> there was a lot of drama there. Yeah. And I love Paul because Paul doesn't hide it. In history now, 2,000 years later, we're talking about a beef that he had with, with Peter. And we're over here like, oh, we got we to protect each other and let's be respectful. I appreciate all that. But, man, there are times when you just got to say it, what, it is what it is. That'd be like, that'd be like, you know, me coming up here and saying, or, or, or Dick G coming up here and saying, I had to challenge Reuben right to his face. We're not apostles at all. But I'm just saying, it'd be similar for us, for somebody to come up here and say that, man, I challenged Reuben, man. That guy was out of control. Look at his marriage. Look at his family. He's got to get things in. You see what I'm saying? I'm all for respect. I'm all for doing things in the correct tone, but... When stakes are high for the church unity, Paul goes for it. I don't think my marriage or family have anything to do with church unity, but I'm just saying. He just goes for it because he knew if just a little bit of yeast gets to the batch of dough, 
it could destroy the church. Peter's sin was nationalism. Insisting by his example that Christians can't be really pleasing to God unless they become Jewish. But nationalism, same as racism, is a form of legalism. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. Legalism always results in pride and fear and division and unhealthy tension within yourself and externally amongst relationships. Look at Peter. In this moment, Peter took off his gospel glasses. He took them off. And he was more afraid of the guys from Jerusalem than he was of God. See, when we are legalistic, when we are when we depend more on where we come from or our cultural background as a way of this is right, this is how it should be, what we're doing is depending on something other than Jesus Christ. And when you start doing that, what does it result in? Superiority, self-righteousness, pride, fear, confusion, insecurity. Jesus is the only way. You know, this type of legalism plays out in different ways in the church. A lot of us in our church upbringing or or even in the international churches of Christ, kind of in our movement of churches, we focus a lot more on our differences than we do our similarities. In order to show we're the true we're the right church. But you don't here's the thing, that church down the street says the same thing. We're the right church. That church around the corner, we're the right church. I mean all every church says we're the right church. We're the true church. See what I'm saying? And what has that done? Divide, 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 divide. Recently, I've been part of a, um, a couple of years ago, I, I did a, 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 a speech at a conference here in Long Beach called Unbox Conference. And one of the gentlemen there that was speaking, his name is Bobby Harrington. And Bobby Harrington comes from an independent Christian churches. So they believe in baptism, they believe in all this stuff, but they're, um, you know, they're, 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 they just do things a little bit differently. But they come from what we call the restoration movement. Our churches come from the restoration movement. We're trying to restore New Testament Christianity in the modern world. Does that make sense? This is kind of our roots. This is where churches of Christ come from. And so Bobby Harrington comes from another kind of a branch from that. Okay, so we have a tribe over here. We've got a tribe over there and stuff like that. So Bobby Harrington was like, you know what? What are we doing? Why are we so like, well, you don't believe in baptism. Well, you don't believe in baptism. Well, you don't believe. But but what do you believe in? We believe in making disciples. Oh, you believe in making disciples? I believe in making disciples. You believe in discipling and discipling one another and being in each other's lives and accountability and evangelism? Well, let's let's focus on that. And so what he did was he got some of the different uh, church leaders from around our movement and from around his tribe, and they formed a network called Renew. And it's, renew, it's, it's, on, it's online. It's called uh, renew.org. If you go to this website, it's kind of cool. And so basically what we're doing is just sharing resources on how we can best make disciples of all nations. Now, doctrinally, we're pretty much in line, but we can learn from each other. We may, li- we may be a bit stronger in certain areas. They may be stronger in certain areas, but there's, when, when you have gospel glasses on, and not legalism, you can learn from other people. Does that make sense? 
You can learn it from anybody. I just last year I had lunch with a pastor from a local congregation down down the street that where my son goes to preschool, and and he reached out to me through Facebook, um, and he was like, "Are you guys ICOC?" And I was like, "Yes," you know. For those of you who are new to our church, our church in our history does not have a great reputation online, and so anyway, I didn't know what he had read, I didn't know what he had seen, <coughs> but uh, he invited me to lunch. Oh, we went to lunch right there at the Thai restaurant on Bellflower and, Car- and Carson. He bought me lunch. I was like, hey, man, thank you for buying me lunch. He said, well, you, your son goes to my preschool, so you pay us preschool. I'll buy you lunch. I'm like, all right, I'll take it. But I'll tell you, I don't, I don't, I'm not necessarily unified with, with them on terms of the baptism issue and the moment of salvation. But, man, I'm unified with him about trying to help people, trying to help our community trying to see how we can serve different, meet different needs. Does that make sense? You guys follow me here? I'm not, I'm not saying we're breaking off and we're going to do our, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let's be careful. Let's put on some gospel glasses and see instead of God, the gospel helps us see what we're more similar in rather than focusing on our differences. Then Paul brings Peter back to an understanding of the gospel. He says, bro, you got to be in line with the truth of the gospel. We're not justified. Justification meaning defended. You know, you see, with sin, there's going to be wrath. There's going to be punishments, right? And so Paul is telling Peter, we're not, Jesus takes that for us. He stands in the gap. He defends us from God's wrath. God doesn't fellowship with you on the basis of your race and culture. We have a mediator. We are justified. By our faith in sin. One of our uh, church evangelists and teachers, Gordon Ferguson, he's in Dallas right now, and uh, he's written many books. And he used to say, I love justified. You know, he talks about it in a southern accent. Because it's just as if I never sinned. You know, that's kind of his way of saying it. <coughs> he's, that's, how he would, that's how he would explain justification, being justified, is it's, it's living life just as if I'd never sinned. That's the gospel. Think about that. The addictions, the insecurities, the fears, the sexual immorality, the debauchery, whatever it is that you have in your life, Jesus says, I'm taking that away from you and presenting you before God clean, brand new. And all you have to do is trust me. Trust me. Have faith. We are justified by our faith in Jesus. And justification then leads to a response. It leads to salvation. It leads to being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But when you're justified, this is how God looks at you. Just as if I would never sinned. That's a big concept. We're going to get more into that as the weeks come by. But I'm just saying, this is a great Bible study for you. The gospel, Paul is not, Paul in his conversation with Peter is not focused on the behavior of Peter, but more so in the underlying motive and the heart. Peter, you've forgotten the gospel. Obedience to the law only results in fear and self-righteousness, which leads to superiority and racism in this case. But the gospel brings people in. 
It brings people together. It doesn't push people out. <coughs> so, why is Sunday still the most segregated day, segregated day of the week in many settings in our society? Why do we allow our racial or cultural differences to influence who and how we fellowship without even knowing it at times? In my opinion, it comes down to one thing. We have a misunderstanding of the gospel. God came to us through Jesus, died for humanity's sin because we could not save ourselves and yet overcame death. And in this new life, he brings all ethnic groups together. When he says go and make disciples of all nations, it's not territories he's talking about. He's talking, that word all nations really refers to ethnic groups. He wants to bring all ethnic groups together to experience his peace. But we are so broken, so confused, so fearful that we bring in all our hurts and prejudices and start saying that we need the gospel plus certain traditions, plus certain rituals. Or that the, yeah, the gospel needs to be proclaimed in our cultural context because if it isn't, then we won't really connect with it. And the whole message we send with this is that the gospel is not enough. And legalism is just a lot easier. And if that's what we want, then Paul says, Jesus died for nothing then. Right? For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If we... If we, the church, were able to take our cue from the gospel and God's grace being enough, I believe we would be able to truly understand Paul's statement to the Galatian church in chapter 5. And we'll read this in a few weeks. It says, where he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This is the standard that the church should have. And when the church has this standard, the question that becomes relevant to all of us is simply this. And I got this from another pastor outside of the ICOC right here. What does love require of me? Now, if you've been in the church here for a while, you've heard me preach on this a bunch of times. Well, guess what? Why do you think I preach on this a bunch of times? Because we fall short of this a bunch of times. I was in two conversations just this week where I fell short of this. I was in about three conversations where the other person fell short of this. You know what I'm saying? Like, we fall short of this. we got to talk about this. What does love require of me? Not her, not him, not my coworker, not my cousin, not my mom, not my dad, not my boss of me. Here's the thing. God's vision becomes more reality. God's vision becomes more reality if more gospel-believing followers were to wrestle with this question and to answer this question. This question will lead us to being able to ask more questions out of curiosity rather than suspicion. It will lead us to understand where each other comes from to eat one another's food, to listen to each other's music, to celebrate our cultural differences, having all ethnic groups at the table to pray and discuss how to change the world. Yeah. 
And the authorities in the heavenly realms will look down and be amazed. And they'll say, oh, that's what God meant when he wanted his wisdom, Ephesians 3.10, his wisdom to be made known in the heavenly realms by looking at the church. One of the things I love about our church is not just the racial diversity, but just understanding each other. Trying to, we're working on this more and more, trying to figure out how do we celebrate one another. And I love, um, I love working on teams. So I like building teams, and I like working on teams. I don't, want, I don't want to be the only one making a decision, although I know at times I've got to make a decision for the church. I don't like that. I like to have teams. And one of my favorite teams is our uh, church core group. And our church core group consists of Dick and Anna G., Asian-American, Joe and Sarah Eads, African-American, George and Sarah Matthew, Indian-American, and Brian and Karen Plamel, white. (laughs) Caucasian, is that right? And then Marina and I, Latino-Americanos. And what I love about that group, whenever we meet, and this wasn't... It actually, now that I think about it, it wasn't even intentional. It was like the Holy Spirit just brought us together. I wasn't going around like, let me find a white guy to be in our... It wasn't like that. It was the Holy Spirit just brought us together. And I noticed it when I, when I put a... I, I didn't have a picture today, but when I put... I preached sometime last year and I showed a picture. And I was like, oh my gosh, look at that. That group is multi-ethnic, multicultural, age differences, I mean, it was an ama- it's an am- and so we bring everything, all of that to the table. When we're deciding what to do as a church, when we're trying to make decisions about, you know, where we need to go, what kind of direction we need to ma- do, we're bringing all that to the table. And yes, our backgrounds influence us, but we all make decisions to put on gospel glasses and view each other from the lens of the gospel. You guys follow me on that? Isn't that cool? I love that. I love that we have that. What has love required of me? I'm going, to say, I'm going to say a few things here that might offend you. And I would just challenge you to put your gospel glasses on as, as I share this. Can I share with you what love has required of me? Love has required of me to understand that because of the brokenness of this world, I will not need to have a particular conversation with my son regarding his interaction with law enforcement officers that my brothers who are African-American will have. And to understand that, to validate that, to have compassion towards that. Love has required of me to acknowledge that law enforcement officers have a very difficult job and put their lives on the line daily. And that when I'm informed by the gospel, I can give grace just as much as I need grace. Love has required of me to honor the hard work of someone from another country coming here and working hard for their children to have opportunities that they didn't have. And in that, to serve them to figure out ways to meet needs in that, in that with the immigrant worker. Love requires of me to navigate 
conversations with the Democrats and with the Republicans. And to listen, to ask questions, to validate, but with gospel glasses on, knowing that neither party is going to solve the moral issues in our country. Because the answers are here in the gospel. The answers are here in the church. A lot of times we don't believe that, though. See, morality, the answers to moral questions in our world are in the gospel, are in this question. What does love require of me? And yet followers of Jesus, this year, election year, watch, watch how we do. Let's watch how each of us do this year in an election year. What we post, what we say, let's watch and see how divisive, how Satan wants to use us to divide us. Because we take off our gospel glasses and we start viewing things the way the world does. You put on gospel glasses, you realize the Republican and the Democrat, same at the, at the foot of the cross. What does love require of me in this conversation? Yeah, but they don't understand. No, 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 no. What does love require of me in this interaction? Love requires selflessness, a dying of oneself for the betterment of someone else. It is the most challenging question to answer. We're going to take communion. I'm going to read this last verse. I want to meditate on this verse. The final statement here that Paul makes to Peter. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Can I get an amen from the church on that? The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. How do we navigate all this? How do we answer that question? Jesus. Jesus did. What did, what did love require of Jesus? To love me and to give himself up for me. So I'm not going to set aside the grace of God. Because if righteousness could be gained through the law, that's easy. Obey a bunch of rules? Got it. True righteousness comes in faith in Christ Jesus. If righteousness comes the law, then Christ died for nothing. The gospel leads to curiosity. The gospel leads to, to relationships. The gospel leads to table fellowship for all ethnic groups. The gospel leads to being motivated by gratitude and grace and not by fear or self-righteousness. The gospel leads to continual remembering of the poor. The gospel leads us to being able to confront one another because with gospel glasses on, we see that we are for each other and not against each other. The gospel leads to great joy. He gave himself up for me. I am justified by faith in Christ. This leads me to obey out of gratitude. Christ lives in me. Christ lives in us, his gospel community. 
Our Father in heaven, as we take communion, as we take the bread that represents the body of Christ, as we take the cup that represents the blood of Christ, (coughs) help us with Paul to identify that the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Because you first loved us and gave yourself up for us. Help us to remember Jesus being crucified and that if we have made a decision to follow Jesus, that we have been crucified with Christ and that we no longer live, but that Christ lives in us. Father, I want to pray for those who are here this morning who are having a difficult time repenting or deciding to follow you. Father, I pray just in this statement alone that we read of Paul, that it will inspire, it will inspire men and women today to make decisions to allow the gospel to change and transform their lives. There are so many in here that are studying the Bible, trying to figure out what to believe, how to believe, when to believe, whatever the case is. There are so many in here that are on the edge of making that choice to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And Father, I pray that we would see, that they would see that you gave yourself up for us. You loved us. That the life we live, we no longer live, but you, Christ, lives in us. I pray, Father, that gospel glasses will influence our interactions with one another across all racial and cultural bounds, God. And that we would Answer the question, what does love require of me in this conversation, in this interaction? A lot of times we concern ourselves with what will love require of that other person. Help us to focus on ourselves and our reactions. Be with your church, Father. Please be with your church. Help your church to be a beacon and hope for the world. Help your church to be the people that you've called us to be. ambassadors, proclaimers of the most amazing news ever. Jesus, Son of God, dying for us, buried and raised on the third day. In his name, church says, Amen. Amen.